This week on Skeleton Closet, we're analyzing a classic of film, one of the most important movies of the mid-70s, featuring some really showy performances of gender and more body oil than we'd care to mention. Whether it's a horror can be debated. Shannon saw it as a comedy musical and one of the most iconic queer films of all time. Well, I thought it was more of a sports drama about a slow-talking Italian boxer. Hopefully we can clear that up by the end of the hour. <laughs> Perfect. Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeleton Closet, a podcast at the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Shannon. And I'm Jake. And this week we are here to watch Rocky Horror Picture Show. Not Rocky. I, uh, I learned my lesson. <laughs> See, you know what? It's, it's okay. Jennifer and Jennifer's body made the exact same mistake. Well, I mean, any time that I'm being put on a, put on a level with Jennifer is sort of an honor. Yes, yes. In this case, I think I'm the the punk dude, Billy Joel wannabe, uh, and you are Jennifer. So I've invited you to watch Rocky Horror Picture Show, and you got confused. <laughs> That's Billy Joe Armstrong, not Billy Joel. <laughs> Damn it, Billy! Jo- <laughs> Sorry, Billy Joe. I put I put an extra letter. Of our- <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a noob. I'm a wannabe poser. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm a noob. I'm a noob. Shannon, what, what were I... your sort of initial thoughts on Rocky Horror? Um, oh god. So, I I've probably watched Rocky Horror like dozens of times by now. Like my, you know, I've gone to go see it in theaters and see it with a shadow cast i did a shadow cast of it you know i i acted out the part of brad and (laughs) um like some of my biggest memories are like my you know my my friend from italy when he was here on exchange like watching rocky horror with him as he's like singing along to all the songs in my friend's basement you know i like in first year of university i was like studying for a calculus exam and watching rocky horror at the same time you know like i've i've got got some history with this movie but Mm. watching watching it this time for the podcast you know and like paying attention more so to the plot and the characters and the themes it was actually a very different experience like i I thought I got to know the whole story and musical quite well when I was like doing the shadow cast, just, just because of like how many times you watch the movie to like lip sync the parts, like learn the cues. But I, I actually didn't get to know the story as well as I thought I did. And so going through this time, I feel like I got much more of an appreciation for like who the characters are and how their stories interweave and interact and Mm. actually i i really enjoyed this and i mean our our like notes for this are a little more sparse than usual but i think we're still gonna have a pretty good discussion on it um what what were your thoughts jake i mean so this is a movie that i have 
seen before, or at least I thought I had. Um, I mentioned at the end of last week's episode that I was like, oh yeah, I watched this movie with my dad when I was like 12. Um, Rewatching it this time, I realized like we got maybe, I don't know, a few songs in. We got to after Dr. Frankenfurter's introduction song. And I was like, I don't think I've seen anything really past this. So I suppose that probably when I watched it with my dad when I was 12, he probably like realized what was coming and like switched it because he didn't want to watch that with his 12 year old son, which totally understandable. Um, And I just kind of went on believing that I had seen the movie when I had seen probably like 20 minutes of it. So (laughs) this is like, yeah. So, I mean, this was like really my first full viewing of it. Uh, You know, a whole, a whole lot more happens in this movie than I remembered. Um, And it's one of those movies that is a lot um but it's it's so much fun like all the songs that you know even the ones that i that aren't hits you know like some some of the ones some of the songs in this movie are ones that you've obviously heard a million times like time work time work time work (laughs) um as the obvious go-to um but you know a lot of the songs are a lot of fun the plot was sort of i think secondary to sort of the sense of fun that the movie Mm. presents um, mm. It really did unravel in in a very spectacular way in the third act, which we'll get to later. Um, but yeah, I think there was like quite a lot more, like looking back on it after I had watched it and I started to start looking back on certain scenes with a critical lens, like you said, there's mm. a whole, whole lot more depth to it than I think first meets the eye. At first, it kind of seems like just a sort of really fun, colorful, like gender play experiment and then yeah when you start sort of picking away at the layers of it it's like oh there's actually some kind of some deep stuff here so i mean i'm excited to get into it i guess we can start off with a summary of the movie which has been graciously provided by yourself as is tradition uh yeah why don't you kick us off on that summary jake i absolutely will The Rocky Horror Picture Show is an important piece of queer history. It started on an experimental stage in London in 1973. From the very beginning, Tim Curry filled the role of Dr. Frankenfurter. Over a seven-year run in London, the cast did 2,960 performances and won the 1973 Evening Standard Theatre Award for Best Musical. The musical was then adapted to film, maintaining Curry as the starring figure. The film's reception was originally negative until it began screening as a midnight movie, which changed everything. Much like late night television programming, midnight movies were a place for offbeat films and counterculture content. A phenomenon since the 1950s, Rocky Horror popularized and defined midnight movies in the 1970s and onward. During midnight showings at the Waverly Theater in New York City in 1976, audience members started interacting with the movie. They would call out to the movie as it played, responding to the characters, heckling them, and pretending to have conversations. The phenomenon caught on, and people started coming to the midnight movies dressed up as different characters, and even started acting out their character as the film played, mouthing the lines while standing by the screen. These impromptu performances turned into full-blown shadow casts, where people dressed as and performed Rocky Horror as the film played behind them. These shadow casts are heavy with audience participation, encouraging callouts and the use of props. Today, 46 years since the film's release, the Rocky Horror Picture Show has become the longest-running theatrical release in film history. 
Rocky Horror is brought back to theaters frequently, often with a shadow cast performing alongside the film, especially around Halloween time. Because of the large international cult following, Rocky Horror is considered one of the greatest musical films of all time. Now, inspired by science fiction and B-rated horror movies from the 1930s through the 1960s, let's get to the plot of Rocky Horror. Everybody loves a wedding. (laughs) Today, Ralph Hapshat and Betty Monroe get married in a small white church. The family gathers on the steps for a portrait after their nuptials, and the woman gather for Betty to throw her bouquet. Our hero, Janet Weiss, catches the bouquet. Ralph and Betty met in Dr. Scott's science refresher course and wound up married. Next up to be wed are Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, a couple who also met in that class. After the happy couple depart for their honeymoon, Brad sticks around in order to propose to Janet. And she, she says yes. Now engaged, the couple decide to visit the man who brought them together, Professor Everett Scott. But just before we meet Dr. Scott, we meet a man in a serious study dressed in a suit with a crimson ascot. Nice one, ascot. Mm -hmm. He is the narrator of this story, the man who has been studying the events of Brad and Janet's night out. In a large book, he shows us pictures from the wedding and engagement. He also shows us profiles on Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott, along with copies of their statements to police. The narrator begins the story of woes by telling us that Brad's spare tire was flat, and so it is on a stormy night out that Brad and Janet pop a tire, can't replace it, and must seek shelter from the rain nearby. The only shelter they find is at a mysterious castle down the road. As they walk in the rain, motorcycles pass them by, so clearly there are people at the castle. When they arrive on the front step, there's a line of motorcycles parked by the entrance, Brad rings the bell, and a skeletal butler answers the door, inviting the couple inside. Shown in by Riffraff, the butler, they next meet Magenta, a drawling maid. The two (laughs) escort Brad and Janet through the castle to where a party is being held. It seems the master of the house is hosting the annual Transylvanian Convention. The hall is filled with eccentrics in suits who begin a bizarre dance, the time warp. After the dance ends and all the dancers collapse from exhaustion, Janet is ready to leave. She drags Brad to the door, but he insists that they stay until they can find a phone and call for help. As they bicker, the master of the house arrives, descending from above in an antique elevator. Dr. Frankenfurter, Frank N. Furter, I suppose, is glamorous, (laughs) statuesque, and a sweet transvestite. He wears a glittery corset, a face full of makeup, and rich fi- ripped fishnets. Pardon me. A welcoming host, he invited Brad and Janet to stay at his abode and join in on the celebrations. Dr. Furter invites them upstairs to the laboratory where they can witness his newest creation. Columbia, a tap-dancing redhead, says it's an honor to see the lab and joins Brad and Janet as they take the elevator up. As it turns out, Dr. Frankenfurter is a biochemist who has discovered the secret to life itself. The guests, along with Brad and Janet, gather to hear the doctor's speech and watch as he completes his experiment. In front of a large tank containing a body wrapped in bandages, Dr. Furter mixes chemicals and activates machinery in his lab to bring life to his creation. That creature, named Rocky, wakes and turns out to be a buff 
muscular blonde man wearing golden booty shorts. Just as Dr. Frankenfurter is about to reveal what he plans to do with Rocky, there is a beeping noise coming from the deep freeze. The deep freeze door falls open and outrides a frostbitten man on a motorcycle. Columbia recognizes him immediately as Eddie, the love of her life. She rushes him and their reunion blossoms into a sweet rock and roll number. Eddie sings and dances with Columbia. Everyone in the party gets into it as Eddie whips out a saxophone and rips a sick solo. Eddie is a rock and roll sex symbol, but something is sort of off about him. He has a large scar across his forehead. As he joyfully terrorizes the guests by riding his motorcycle around the laboratory, Dr. Furter stays back and watches. That is, of course, until Rocky begins to join the dancing. Upset, Frankenfurter cages Rocky in the elevator and goes into the deep freeze to retrieve a large ice pick. He comes out to greet Eddie, feigning kindness until he's able to chase Eddie back into the freezer and kill him with the ice pick. Columbia is devastated, watching as Dr. Furter emerges covered in blood. It turns out that Eddie is one of Dr. Furter's past experiments, one he had locked away in the vaults. Rocky is upset by all the commotion and bangs on the bars of the elevator. Trying to soothe Rocky, Dr. Furter explains that what he did was a mercy killing, putting an old and no longer appealing experiment out of his misery. Realizing that he is Dr. Furter's new fixation, Rocky hops to fulfill his role as the hot muscle man. Rocky and Frank and Furter <laughs> depart the party to the privacy of their bridal suite. After their exit, the rest of the party guests depart, and Brad and Janet are shown to their rooms. Separate rooms. Their rooms, however, are not very private. There are cameras in the rooms, and the servants watch from screens as Brad and Janet settle into their respective beds. Janet's in the middle of trying to sleep when there's a knock at her door. It's Brad. He climbs into bed and begins to canoodle with her. Quickly, however, Janet pulls a, pulls off a wig to reveal that it's actually Dr. Furter dressed up as Brad. Resistant at first, Dr. Furter manages to seduce Janet and take her virginity, promising not to tell Brad about her dalliance. Back in the lab slash bridal suite, Rocky is asleep and chained to his bed. Riff Raff terrorizes Rocky for fun, spurring the hottie to rip free of his chains and escape to another floor. Meanwhile, in Brad's room, Janet sneaks in to visit Brad. However, as they cuddle, Brad brushes off a wig to reveal that it's really Dr. Frankenfurter in his bed. Much like Janet, Brad resists at first, but is soon seduced by Dr. Furter, and he takes Brad's virginity, promising not to tell Janet. As they begin to make love, Riffraff announces over a castle-wide communication system that Rocky has escaped his chains and is running loose on the grounds. Undeterred, Dr. Furter continues fraternizing with Brad. (laughs) Rocky runs the grounds pursued by dogs and ends up colliding with Janet as she laments cheating on Brad. Janet, in her misery, checks the room cameras to discover that Brad, too, has slept with Dr. Furter. Upset, she turns to Rocky for distraction. Hurt from being chased, Janet dresses Rocky's wounds. In return, Rocky thanks Janet with his body, as Magenta and Columbia watch over the monitor. They make love in the lab and rest hidden under silk sheets. Soon after, Dr. Furter, Brad, and Riff Raff arrive in the lab. 
Checking the monitors to find Rocky, they discover an intruder at the castle. Brad recognizes him immediately. It's Dr. Scott. Frankenfurter, <gasps> too, is acquainted with Dr. Scott and becomes suspicious of Brad. Dr. Scott used to be a science teacher, but is now working for the government bureau, the government's Bureau of Investigation looking into UFOs. Upset by his appearance, Dr. Furter pulls Dr. Scott to the laboratory with an extremely strong magnet. Uh, Dr. Scott, who is in a wheelchair, zooms through the castle and into the lab promptly. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Furter confronts Dr. Scott, accusing him of sending Brad and Janet to Snoop before he arrived. However, Dr. Scott is at the castle for another reason entirely. He is looking for his nephew, Eddie. Eddie is Dr. <gasps> Scott's nephew. Janet gasps at this, revealing that her and Rocky's presence in revealing her and Rocky's presence in the lab. Dr. Furter admonishes Rocky for his betrayal, but is soon interrupted when Magenta announces that dinner is ready. At the dinner table, everyone left gathers. Brad, Janet, Dr. Scott, Rocky, Dr. Furter, Columbia, Magenta, and Riff Raff. Dr. Frankenfurter makes a toast to absent friends, serves meat, and then they sing Rocky happy birthday. A few bites into the meal, it's revealed, well, implied, that they are eating none other than Eddie. Eddie was a no-good punk and fell in with a bad crowd, but he sent a letter to Dr. Scott warning that something was going on and he was losing his mind. Before Dr. Scott can accuse Dr. Furter of anything further, Furter pulls away the tablecloth to reveal Eddie's mutilated body under the glass of the table. His reveal kicks off panic. Brad and Dr. Scott flee, and Dr. Furter chases Janet. Once again, they all end up in the lab. Janet is angry at Dr. Furter for turning her life upside down. Frankenfurter is mad at Janet for sleeping with Rocky. With the flick of a switch, Dr. Furter glues his guests' feet to the floor, rendering them stuck. This reveals to Dr. Scott that Dr. Furter has managed to create a fully functional sonic transducer, capable of transporting matter across space and time. But for the present, Dr. Furter uses it to turn Brad, Dr. Scott, and Janet into statues. Now Columbia arrives in the lab and shouts at Dr. Frankenfurter. Columbia had been his first fling, then he had abandoned her for Eddie, then abandoned Eddie for Rocky. Frankenfurter uses people as he sees fit, chews them up, and spits them out. After her monologue, Dr. Furter turns Columbia and then Rocky into statues as well. Uh, speaking with Magenta and Riff Raff, Dr. Furter assures them that he will recompense them well for their service. It seems that Magenta and Riff Raff are not of this world, though, but from a planet named Transylvania. Next up, we have the floor show. There's sort of a, a, a cabaret feature going on in the third act, and <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to let Shannon explain this one. Uh, yeah, so I didn't even bother writing out a beautiful summary for this. So, <laughs> uh, like, if, if it, it, it will make no sense anyway, but I'm going to explain the floor show. If you haven't seen Rocky Horror and you want to see the floor show, please look it up on YouTube. If you just type in Rocky Horror Floor Show, you can watch the full thing. It's beautiful. So, in an empty theater... On the stage are our statues of Columbia, Brad, Janet, and Rocky. Behind the stage, we have the statue of Dr. Scott. Each of them is dressed up with their face painted, 
with a fluffy boa, corsets, <laughs> ripped fishnet tights, mm-hmm. and high heels. A song begins, and uh, Dr. Frankenfurter demedusifies uh, them one by one. Columbia, Rocky, mm-hmm. Janet, and Brad. Yes, and they dance and sing on the stage. They are then joined by Dr. Frankenfurter, who is also done up in corset fishnets and makeup with a boa. And they all sing. There is a pool behind the stage as well, in which, you know, Frankenfurter dramatically jumps into the pool and then the rest of the cast join him. They have kind of an orgy in the pool. It's limbs are everywhere. High heels are falling off. The makeup is all smudged. You know, um, everyone is kind of panicking. Um, You know, they crawl out of the pool. And then entering the theater is Riffraff and Magenta. But they're no longer dressed in their servant's attire, butler and maid uniforms. No, no. They're wearing futuristic looking mini dresses. And their hair is done up very different. And Riffraff is holding a ray gun. So it turns out that they have usurped Frankenfurter and Riffraff has now become his commanding officer and he plans to take them back to their home galaxy of Transylvania, to their home planet of transsexual. But after a stunning number where Dr. Frankenfurter, you know, says... Uh, essentially like he's going to depart this earth and that he's going home. You know, Dr. Frankenfurter also turns out to be an alien from transsexual. Mm-hmm. Riffraff reveals, oh, when I said we are returning to Transylvania, I didn't mean you. And he shoots Dr. Frankenfurter with his uh, ray gun that produces a beam of pure antimatter and kills him. And, you know, having witness the death of his master and creator rocky is very upset and scoops up the corpse of dr frankenfurter and proceeds to climb a radio tower that's in the background for some reason as part of the set Mm -hmm. it's very uh king kong-esque you Mm. know trying to like escape with the damsel in distress you know he's mourning his master rocky doesn't really understand what's going on he's only been alive for seven hours like this poor guy like he 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 has no concept of anything he's only been used as quite literally a boy toy um and he eventually gets shot as well the two of them fall and uh end up drowning in the pool together um we also have Columbia shot. Um, so she dies too because she, you know, has a kind of outburst. And then Magenta and Riff Raff speak to the final three standing, which is Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott. And Dr. Scott, you know, kind of commends Riff Raff for, you know, killing Dr. Frankenfurter, whereas Janet and Brad are very distressed by this. But in the end, uh, Riff Raff tells them, you know, get out, we're going to be transporting the whole house back to Transylvania. And so that's how mm-hmm. our musical ends with Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott lying on the ground um, on the remains of the land as the Castle Frankenstein is 
lifted and transported to another world. Yeah, and then we get, I mean, there's an outro sort of like, uh, uh, what would you call it, an epilogue where the narrator, the criminologist sort of talks about how the human race is sort of a bunch of insects who are crawling around on the surface of the planet looking for meaning. Um, And then we get the end credits. Yeah. That's the end of the movie. It's a wild one. I, I mean... Like I said, the plot almost feels secondary to a lot of the other things that the the movie presents because it does sort of unravel where it turns out to, like half the characters are aliens and then the the mansion is going to turn into a rocket ship and blast off at the end of the movie. That like mm-hmm. <laughs> feels like something that doesn't really uh, make sense, I would suppose. Um, it's definitely not the ending you would predict from the beginning. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, what's your what's your sort of like... What's your sort of takeaway from the movie? How do you how do you feel at the end of it? What was your like sort of I guess on a rewatch now? What what was what was the uh, lasting feeling that it left you with when we when we cut to the credits there and get the the reprise of science fiction picture show? Yeah, it hmm, it's 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 an it's definitely an interesting feeling that i'm left with it seems very uh bittersweet Hmm. um i will say like the first time i watched the movie you know the the floor show made no sense to me i was like oh this came (laughs) out of fucking nowhere um what um but you know watching through the movie again you know already knowing that um you know frankenfurter riffraff and magenta and all of all of their transylvanian party guests Mm. knowing that they're aliens from the very beginning does um help it you know make more sense as you go through and really what i get from this movie is it's it's Oh God, it's Brad and Janet, this kind of, you know, very basic uh, high school sweethearts, you know, the boy next door and the girl next door, adventuring into a completely different world, quite literally. Um, it, It could be the same as them, you know, accidentally stumbling into a queer club, but they, Mm. you know seeking you know just some help they end up getting so much um other help with discovering who they are and uh transgressing the limits of their you know normal heteronormative lives and you know in the floor show uh janet during her solo she says you know she's been liberated you know she has this new confidence to her um whereas brad during the floor show you know he's still confused he's he doesn't really understand what he's going through um you know goes like help me mommy like i feel sexy you know um <laughs> yeah he so that was <laughs> yeah that was definitely something that was said <laughs> so the the two of them go on this journey of self-discovery uh, with the help of people who are alien to them, right? And the biggest thing that I get from 
this movie and we're going to talk about it a little bit more is um indulgence and overindulgence and so there are consequences to living this very lavish um selfish narcissistic lifestyle which we see through frankenfurter and how he is you know punished for using people literally creating people to use them um whereas mm-hmm. we see that some you know moderate indulgence by Brad and Janet um is freeing in a sense you know and it shows them different sides of themselves and so we see this kind of contrast between you know the very conservative lifestyle that Brad and Janet were living at the beginning of the movie um and we see as they, you know, as very conservative people come into contact with someone who has, you know, zero boundaries, you know, zero limits. And, you know, the clash between this conservative versus this very liberal lifestyle and, you know, how they interact. And then at the end of the day, how overindulgence is not the best way to go. Perhaps living that conservative life, you know, shuts you off from pleasure and how, you know, if you indulge moderately, you can enjoy that pleasure without tinting your entire world to be rose, you know, to hide from your pain and anguish. Mm. Um, Because it's, you know, no matter how well you manage to uh, put on those rose tinted glasses it's not going to get rid of the harsh realities um, of what you're experiencing eventually you will have to come back to reality and recognize the consequences of your actions so i i i i i feel very confused at the end of this movie but also kind of satisfied <laughs> i guess I, I i don't know what what did, what did you feel, Jake? What what did what did you walk away from this movie with? Yeah, I mean, like I said, a lot of the sort of thoughts that I have about the movie when it because I think you touched on a lot there when it comes to like repression and hedonism and things, and I do think that's what this movie is sort of about uh, when you really take mm-hmm. a, a critical look to it. Um, But at the end of it, like I said, after the third act in the floor show where everything just kind of goes haywire, Mm -hmm. um, they, they have this sort of monologue from the narrator where he talks about, you know, like I said, how we're all just insect insects on the planet's surface, crawling around, lost in time, lost in space and lost in meaning and, and how we're sort of doomed to this, this search for meaning, uh, for, for all of mankind. And, um, it sort of made me think like maybe what they're trying to tell us is not to look too far into the story for meaning. Like, I mean, the, we're obviously going to do the opposite of that. That's kind of what we do. We take a, a critical eye to, to everything we watch. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, I was like, is that what they're trying to tell me to do is like not look too closely and just kind of take it for what it is and have some fun. Um, but I think like, yeah, like I said, when I started dialing in more and thinking about it, it, it does kind of come down to this sort of, uh, this movie about repression and about two people who seem perfectly happy at the beginning of the movie, but actually have quite a lot sort of brewing inside them. And mm-hmm. I think like sort of the culture that they come from, right. They are, they are very repressed people. They are sort of um, 
I presume Protestant, like, like waspy type Americans, decently well off uh, in like, you know, the mid to late 20th century. Um, And I guess we can fully move on into talking about the themes of the movie. And, you know, we've already identified repression as a big one. Um, And, and I think uh, Brad and Janet go through a hell of a transformation over the course of the movie. Um, And I think Ralph and Betty kind of represent the culture that they come from right at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, In the first scene, you know, Ralph and Betty get married, they leave the church, they get in their car to go off to their honeymoon and presumably their happily married life. Um, and they have just married written on the back of their car. And then on the side of the car, they have written, she got hers. Now he'll get his, which, you know, reflects some pretty old fashioned ideas about love and marriage and sex of how, first of all, like indicating that they are saving themselves for marriage. Second of all, that, you know, marriage is, is for the woman and, and sex is for the man. That's, mm-hmm. that's the, the tradition. That's how we all recognize love and marriage to be. Um, and that's that's the world that Brad and Janet come from, and that's what's expected of them pretty clearly. And then, you know, by the end of the movie, we sort of get signs that there's a little bit, maybe a little bit more to them and their desires than than what that world offers. Yeah, I I really do love the contrast we get between uh, these two couples that met in the same class, right? Mm. You know, uh, Brad and Ralph are buddies. And they met their honeys in their science class. Uh-huh. And <laughs> just buddies you know, and honeys. <laughs> and buddies and honeys. Aw yeah. The two genders. <laughs> and uh we, you know, we we see that Ralph and Betty are this uh ideal couple, you know, probably set to become a nuclear family, right? With uh Ralph presumably as the breadwinner, and you know, Betty is She's a great cook, you know, and then we get uh, Brad and Janet. And although they do seem like this, you know, these typical high school sweethearts, I think from the beginning of the movie, we see some foreshadowing that perhaps they are an unusual couple. Um, And that begins with brad proposing to janet in a cemetery (laughs) oh yeah he does (laughs) yeah yeah right it's 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 not the most romantic setting Mm -hmm. um but you know it's it's right after a wedding it seems a little like perhaps forced um because janet has you know caught the bride's bouquet you know foreshadowing that she is to be the next who weds and you know uh Ralph is kind of like, you know, elbowing Brad of like, oh, you're going to be next. And so it it kind of seems to me that Brad is a little forced and maybe he's not actually ready uh, to get married, but, you know, continues the script and the obligations to propose. Uh, So they get engaged in the graveyard and then their musical number, you know, damn it, Janet. Uh, goes into the little church and you know as the church is making preparations for a funeral so we've got this uh, juxtaposition of a wedding straight into a funeral which Mm -hmm. I, I number one find to be a very you know kind of fun commentary on the use of churches and how it's this place where we have these big celebrations of life but 
also host, you know, back to back the celebration of death. Mm. And literally as Brad and Janet are like celebrating their, you know, engagement, <laughs> uh, the like they're wheeling in the fucking like coffin, you know, yeah. for the funeral or like the casket. And, you know, these two are like kissing and they're like, hey, let's go back to the beginning and go visit the man who started it all, our, you know, science teacher. Yeah, as as you do. As 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 you do. As you Def- do. Definitely a bad omen to I, propose and then have the coffin get wheeled out like right um, after. Right? So I we've got some like nice foreshadowing that, you know, Brad and Janet's engagement and entire situation is, you know, perhaps I I'm in trouble reading. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. troubled. I'm I'm enjoying reading it as uh, their, you know, their engagement uh, foreshadows the death of their compliance to heteronormative uh, society, right? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's this going back to the beginning of their relationship that will end with... Uh, brad and janet no longer you know being the conservative straight people that they were when they met so death to heteronormativity huzzah (laughs) and i think like this movie has a whole lot of messages like you you know you kind of mentioned at the cabaret show when it comes to sexual liberation and how brad feels great he feels sexy at the end and janet feels like a weight has been lifted and her eyes have been opened Um, I think there's also sort of a lot to be said for this movie's representation of sort of the darker sides of hedonism, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they're sucked into the world of Dr. Frank, Frank Furter. And I don't know why I'm struggling with that name. (laughs) I I keep just thinking Frank Furter, like a hot dog. And then anyway, yeah. Um, they, they get sucked into this world of, of hedonism and of pleasure seeking and all that. And maybe that seemed fun for a second. They both definitely seemed charmed when they first entered the castle. They're both kind of like giving Frank the, the eyes, the up and down and kind of like Brad, like flubs his words at one point and like messes up her name. Like he yeah. introduces her. He's like, this is my fiance, Janet Weiss. And she's like, Weiss. And he's like, I know. <laughs> like, so they're, they're both somewhat charmed by Frank when they first meet him. And maybe it seems like something that's like fun for them to observe, but not to indulge in. Uh, yeah. the sort of like behaviors that, that he gets into. But I, I think overall, in my opinion, th- this was my takeaway. I don't know if you agree, but I thought Dr. Frankenfurter can sort of be seen as the representation of going too far when it comes to hedonism. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of a lightning rod for people letting go of their hangups, which is well and good, but, but he often totally disregards their uh, consent and, and their well-being. Um, yeah. He, he seduces both Brad and Janet under false pretenses. He Definitely does not take no for an answer. He disguises as either of them when he goes to seduce the other one. And then they discover that it's him and he doesn't necessarily have sex with them under false pretenses. But then he uh, he is certainly not taking no for an answer. This the Yeah, I, I think his conception of uh, consent doesn't really match up with a, a 2022 conception of consent. <laughs> yeah, and the thing I actually find quite interesting about uh, these seduction scenes is that uh, 
Dr. Frankenfurter approaches Brad and Janet in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he, you know, shows up disguising himself as their partner, you know, um, you know, uses that to kind of worm his way in and then says the same things. You know, uh, Brad is like, oh, but what about Janet? And he's like, oh, what about her? Should I do something to her? Said the exact exact same thing to Janet, right? When she's like, oh, but Brad. And he's like, oh, what about Brad? Should I do something to him? What have you done to Brad? Nothing. Do you think I should? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There (laughs) we go. There we go. Um, And, you know, like uh, when they're like, oh, no, but we shouldn't. We should stop. And he's like. Oh, but I, I think you'll find it is quite a pleasure. Quite it's not so bad also. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's, it's not so bad, you know. Would uh, you want Janet to see you like this? Yeah. And like, oh, I don't worry. I won't tell. I won't yeah. tell them, you know, and it's, it's actually, it's like, it's, it's, it's quite interesting of, you know, would, would you want to see, would you want your partner to see you in this compromising position? No. <laughs> that I put uh, you in. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that I put you in. But it's also like, oh, but, you know, at, at eventually if they were, you know, if Brad and Janet were to hook up with each other and actually have sex, then they, they would be seeing each other in this compromising position. So I I find it interesting that it's easier for them to be seen um, in this like vulnerable space by practically a complete stranger. Mm. Um, and it's easier to be seen that way by a stranger than it is to be seen by their partner. Um, whereas you would think that, you know, having built up trust between Brad and Janet, that it would be easier for them to, you know, be vulnerable together, but no, instead it's, it's easier with this, um, kind of larger than life, personality dr frankenfurter Mm. and uh, it 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 might be um really because uh frankenfurter objectifies them and being put into this situation of objectification it's it's almost i guess a bit easier um to be in that vulnerable space as opposed to when you're being viewed as you know a complex human being uh so instead of brad you know being himself you know in this sexual situation same with janet they get to fall into this role of Mm. you know instead of being themselves in a sexual situation they get to play second fiddle to frankenfurter as you know, hmm. Furter's kind of sex toy, right? Yeah, and he he definitely treats everyone like playthings. He he's kind of like a battering ram for people's sexual hangups. He's Absolutely. Just like, which he also acts as a battering ram to their objections and <laughs> boundaries. <laughs> so yes. you know that's not necessarily great. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, the we we can see from you know. The way that he treats them as playthings, the the way he uh, like he he medusifies them. He turns on the medusifier machine, of course, turns them into statues, and then they're all yes. sort of lined up for this cabaret performance and literally objectified and 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 you know kind of plays with them. Like I would say, he literally plays dress up with them. He he basically Barbies them. Yeah, um, they're toys. They're he, toys to him. He treats people as literal playthings, and then also he straight up murders Eddie. 
Um, so, you know, he, he treats people as things to be toyed with and he does not respond well to their defiance when Eddie just sort of starts partying too hard for even him and, Mm -hmm. and sort of like winning the affections of Rocky. He is, it's hilarious how jealous he is, uh, when it comes to Rocky, but then when, with other people's partners, (laughs) he's just like taking what he sees as his. So he's yeah. sort of a paradox. He, he's all about breaking norms and rebelling and, and you know, yeah, rebelling. But he can't stand people rebelling against him. That is a line he will not cross. Yeah. Uh, Frankenfurter is very much um, like a, a, a self-centered, self-important narcissist. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what's what's uh what's yours is his and what's his is his Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah and like like, yeah and he he doesn't really uh, care about ruining other people's relationships you know he takes on the brunt of these things he doesn't really care about the consequences and he expects that there will be no consequences for him right he's in this position of power and you know he's 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 a very privileged um person mm-hmm. right you know he's a rich white doctor you know <laughs> who lives on a large estate uh-huh. he has servants uh he has privacy you know he's the grand host of this annual um gathering of transylvanians you know so he has a following he has fans you know he has people applauding his efforts mm-hmm. um and, you know, he keeps drawing more people in, right? We get the story from Columbia that she had just been, you know, um, a normal girl, you know, living her life and then gets seduced by this, um, you know, rule breaker, right, into a more scandalous life. And, you know, at first when I watched the movie, I thought that was Eddie. But no, 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 it, it turns out to have been Dr. Frankenfarter. Mm-hmm. And so Columbia is one of his uh, first conquests, I guess, and, you know, added to the collection. And when he gets bored of her, he, you know, brings in Eddie, who's already this kind of like punk rock and roller, and then starts doing experiments on him, right? You know, like takes his brain, cuts it in (laughs) half, you know, half for Rocky, half for Eddie, you know, and it's, uh, he's, Frankenfurter is definitely an interesting character um, because he's so strong. You know, he's literally like a Disney evil queen. Um, (laughs) He it's it's easy for um, the characters who are pulled in by him and spellbound to blame their violation of norms on Dr. Frankenfurter. So Mm. he becomes a scapegoat for their deviance, right? You know, Columbia can blame everything on Dr. Frankenfurter because he's the reason she left behind her other life. You know, um, Brad and Janet can blame their, you know, uh, sexual activity on Dr. Frankenfurter. You know, it becomes that, like, they were able to indulge in, you know, their own fantasies uh, without shouldering the burden of blame, for that and so instead of blaming themselves for oh no how could i do that they can go oh it's it's his fault you yeah know? oh that's an, i did not think of it that way i also think like i thought that the way that frankenfurter is sort of 
you know, you mentioned he's rich and he's got this estate and all this privacy and stuff. I, I think it sort of points to me anyway, how this sort of systemic popularized traditionalist repression can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you tell someone not to do something, you know, whether it's, it's queer sexuality or just sexuality in general, uh, you know, don't do this because it's unholy or, or you're bad for thinking this or wanting this. That leads people to doing those things in secret away from sort of the eyes mm-hmm. of polite society Um which then, you know, people people do things clandestinely, which then in turn creates an environment that enables abuse. If someone happens to be rich and have an estate and privacy and basically a, a base to operate out of, um, mm. that can lead to harm from, you know, the abuse that's the abuser that's been enabled, which then people who want to repress that activity can use to justify their repression. Um yeah which which to me is why visibility is so important within this community right a lot of times people like i mentioned it before on the podcast but i'm in a a wonderful long-term loving relationship with a woman and people know that about me and then when i mention that i'm bisexual people are like why why would you bring that up like that's such a thing to you know how is that relevant to your life and Mm. i think that's why i think it makes sense that people want to be visible because you can see what the consequences are for the community as a whole, when people aren't visible, if, if people think that this is shameful, that, you know, being queer or, or what have you, uh, is, is a shameful thing, then, you know, that's, that can lead to some dark places, I think. And that's, to me, that's what this movie was about. Yes. The absolutely. dark places that repression, uh, can lead to. Yeah. Like, um, keeping things in secret uh leads to a lot of despair mm-hmm. and um i so one of the big inspirations for rocky horror is um mary shelley's story of frankenstein mm-hmm. right and i and like that story is all about you know it's this secret experimentation um that happens you know in isolation um alone you know he uh avoids everyone to um uh fixate on this obsession of creating perfection Mm. right and so hiding you know everything kind of leads to his life imploding um which is a lot like, you know, hiding your sexuality and sexual experimentation, except with uh, Victor Frankenstein, it's creating life and, you know, acting on that hubris. Mm. Um, specifically, uh, that one is interesting um, because it's uh, the male hubris of wanting to create life, right? Oh, yeah. um, whereas, you know, uh, a woman could just have a baby but uh, for a man, you know, if you're going to create life, it happens through this kind of like very scientific lens as opposed to a naturalistic lens. Mm. And I think uh, Rocky Horror uh, answers the question, you know, but but what if Victor Frankenstein had been queer, you know, <laughs> and it it shows us that his, you know, creation of life isn't just because he wants to create this um perfect being um just you know to exist and because he could and because you know he was interested but 
that his purpose for creating this perfect life is much more selfish uh, than that. And it's because he wants to possess perfection, right? And, you know, if we add on the lens that, you know, Dr. Frankenfurter is an alien, right? (laughs) Then it's, he wants to create the perfect human. Uh, He makes a lot of references to like Atlas, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So he wants to create the perfect human and possess that perfect human. Um, And I actually think Rocky is, I mean, he literally only lives for seven hours, but he's, he's a pretty interesting character because uh, Rocky is literally like he's, he's created to be perfect. um, But his perfection is only physical and his, you know, song right after he's awoken is about wanting to die yeah the sword of damocles hanging over his head yeah right and so it's it's you know it it's fascinating and how uh someone who's perfect you know could hate their life Mm. um and it's really interesting because uh rocky's story really relates to um, our kind of larger society because Rocky's actor um, was a model. Um, yeah. And I think uh, that kind of taps into the fact that people who have this outward appearance of perfection really are suffering on the inside because, you know, they're only wanted because of their body, but not because of who they actually are. You know, their entire purpose is to be aesthetically pleasing, to pose for their masters, you know, to pose for the people who are taking their picture for the magazines. Mm. You know, they're not appreciated for what they have to say, for the thoughts in their head. You know, Rocky is so named for the rocks in his head, you know, not (laughs) for actually who he is as a person. And Rocky is really unfortunate because... Um, he does follow that line of the the only thing he's ever taught is pleasure yeah right and the only thing he's you know trusts in is you know um like orgasms essentially and the pleasure of physical touch with another person Mm -hmm. so he literally doesn't know anything else in life and so his reaction to everything is to turn to sex and uh you know even when like janet is showing him some compassion um with trying to you know mend his wounds and you know or address his wounds you know yeah rocky immediately turns that um into something sexual because he doesn't understand any other way to receive you know support and affection so it's actually quite a sad character yeah and he doesn't speak a word outside of his song i don't think like he no he comes out and sings a full musical number and then but beyond that he is like frankenstein's monster in that he only kind of speaks in grunts and moans and um non-verbal general communication for the rest of the movie yeah see okay um i i don't know if i told you but i so i actually read frankenstein okay and i i fucking love that book highly recommend it yeah because um no movie 
portrays uh, Frankenstein's monster correctly. Um, They do in like the very beginning for like the first third of the book when yes, you know, he's um, an unintelligible monster, you know, was meant to be a beautiful creation, but turned out to be, you know, gruesome and horrifying. But um, papery yellow skin that doesn't cover his organs and whatnot. uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what we get with Rocky which is this monster who's just been born, you know, doesn't know any better. But in Mary Shelley's novel, uh, like the monster actually learns how to speak. Um, He reads books, he becomes educated and, you know, he's actually a highly intelligent creature and he, yeah. And he comes to confront Victor Frankenstein right about you know i didn't wish to be born you know you caused me this suffering (laughs) and now you're you know assigning me to this fate of being the only one of my species with no one else to relate to and it's it's it really is a beautiful story of um you know the hubris of you know men wanting to bring uh, some sort of creation to life, but then not taking the responsibility for that creation mm. to take care of it and, you know, show loving and affection and to teach and whatnot, you know. So it's it's all about uh, fathers who abandon their children. Right. Right. At what point um, in the book does Frankenstein turn into Kevin James and then become friends with a vampire uh, voiced <laughs> by Adam Sandler? <laughs> see i think that's in the sequel oh, okay gotcha yeah <laughs> gotcha. yeah so i i do actually wonder you know if uh <laughs> from the galaxy hotel transylvania uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like i i i do wonder um you know how how might um how might rocky's story have uh progressed you know if he doesn't die you know uh seven Mm. hours after his birth you know could rocky have had that kind of glow up of becoming you know an intelligible you know well-spoken gentleman Hmm. uh who then later addresses dr frankenfurter of hey why did you create me to be (laughs) your sexy boy toy you know and you know deprive me of living an actual life yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's a nice You could have been happy. Yeah, you could have been happy living with like Brad and Janet or something, you know, having a nice like uh thruple. Oh. Right? Or he could be like their adopted son, like Oh yeah. Like Sonic from the Sonic the Hedgehog movies. Uh, totally. Yeah. Totally. I watched Sonic two last great. night. It was awesome. Ah, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I haven't seen those movies. Maybe I should. <laughs> don't worry, those will be our October special. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, So uh, uh, something else I wanted to talk about is that like comes up in the film is, of course, alienation. Mm. Um, And, you know, of course, it comes in because Frankenfurter, Magenta and Riff Raff are aliens, you know. Uh, They're from the planet Transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. Yeah. But it also comes up at dinner. Um, when Dr. Scott, you know, accuses them of being an alien, but as it turns out, Dr. Scott is an alien as well, not like an intergalactic alien, but an immigrant, mm-hmm. which I mean, we, uh, it, it, it would have, you know, kind of seem obvious to us today in like the 2020s, 
you know, because he he speaks with an accent. Did he speak with an accent before that reveal or did he start after the after Furter pointed out that his name is Von Scott? I thought Ooh, he like I, adopted an accent after that reveal happened, but I would have to watch again to be hundred percent. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think his accent like definitely got thicker. <laughs> okay, fair. toward the end. <laughs> yeah, but like Doctor Frankenfurter like points it. Yeah, he points it out at dinner that his name is Von Scott, and like I I had never noticed this in like the earlier watchings, but like Brad is fucking horrified <laughs> when oh. he's like dr scott like what what do you mean your name is von scott and like you know dr scott is you know tries to play it off and stuff and be like oh i'm not the real enemy here you know it's 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 frankenfurter but you know we see we do see uh dr scott kind of double down on his americanness afterwards you know um like talking about how you know, it was just to kill Dr. Frankenfurter and that this monster couldn't be released on the world. You know, he kind he goes kind of like uh, pro uh, estate ex- execution, mm. you know, and like pro prison. <laughs> he uh, did. Oh, he very yeah. much did. Which I thought was pretty interesting, even to the point of being like, oh, you know, well, my nephew, Eddie, who was, you know, this no good punk, maybe things worked out in the right way after all. And it's like, wow, you really... I interpreted that as him, like, trying to save his skin once he realized that Eddie was, like, fully dead in a lost cause. I thought he was just, like, Uh, saying what he needed to get out of the mansion. That was my interpretation, anyway. Okay, that's fair. That that is absolutely fair. I, I thought there was a reveal coming where like he was going to turn out to be like a secret Nazi collaborator or something when, when his name was Von Scott. And I noticed that like Frankenfurter's wearing um a pink triangle on his like scrubs in some of the lab scenes. So yeah. I was like, maybe there's some connection coming there. Um <sighs> But no, I think, yeah, the characters were just amazed with him having an immigrant background. I think that was all there was to it. I don't know. Ooh, <laughs> I, I, I like this, like, uh, you know, potential Nazism uh, <laughs> theme and plot. Like, m- maybe that's true. You know, that that is pretty interesting because, mm. I mean wow he's like maybe about the right age for it too like i I don't know yeah Yeah. i i think so like maybe that is why he's working with you know the fbi about ufos and stuff like maybe he was recruited from the war right Mm -hmm. wow that's how nasa happened oh my god really well i'm not even surprised yeah. i mean i am but allegedly allegedly <laughs> oh, oh of course allegedly. Yeah. um and then okay of course we have our aliens riff raff and magenta mm-hmm. and uh talking on our discord i had posed the question of you know who's your favorite character and um our uh, our our lovely Lord Shen was uh, saying that, you know, Riff Raff is his favorite character. Um, and Riff Raff is actually played by the original author of the musical and then follow-up of the film. And Riff Raff and Magenta turn out to be, you know, siblings uh, who are aliens. And there's something very captivating and appealing 
about the two of them. And I think it might be in part because um, uh, Richard O'Brien. Yeah, because Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn are original stage actors from the musical when it, you know, before it was made into a film. So they've, you know, gotten to know the characters quite well, Mm -hmm. but they like, you know, and it gives them this, this very interesting energy in the film. And they, they keep doing, you know, this one arm motion where like, they'll kind of go in for a double high five and, you know, (laughs) their, their hands like curl to the sky and, you know, they touch forearms and elbows. And, uh, when I was doing the shadow cast, our, our riffraff and magenta, whenever they would like do that kind of like high fivey thing, they would be like elbow sex, elbow sex, oh. you know, <laughs> of like, right? Of like, and so I just know it is, I'm like, oh, yes, Riff Raff and Magenta have elbow sex a lot. You know, they, they do this strange uh, connection. And I, I, I don't know, Jake, what, what did you think about Magenta and Riff Raff? I thought that was like pseudo incestuous. I fully thought they were going to kiss every single time they did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're um, definitely incestuous. Yeah, I so Patricia Quinn also I was uh, I was reading up on the trivia and and stuff. Um she part of the reason she joined the cast in the first place was cuz she loved the opening song, the uh Midnight Double Feature picture show yeah. song. Um and she wanted to sing it and then she didn't get to sing it for the movie. Richard O'Brien did the the writer who also played Riff Raff. Um and so but they let her lip sync it like it's her lips in the beginning Mm -hmm. uh, over the title credits. So I thought that was an interesting fun fact. Um, I love that. I love those lips. Fucking Dairy Queen copied those lips. You're so right. Right. And like the lips on the poster were supposed to be a play on the Jaws poster. Oh, right. Right. Also, like you, you mentioned, you know, when it comes to Dr. Von Scott and Dr. Frankenfurter, two doctors, by the way, does this count as dark academia? Let us know. Um, (laughs) They, you know, with this character who is a literal alien, alienating someone else, I think I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring this up or not. But um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Richard O'Brien is definitely an interesting figure because he identifies as like sort of a non-binary person. He has been quoted as saying he sees himself as about 70% male, 30% female, um, has taken like estrogen treatments and stuff, but then has also said like some pretty transphobic things about trans women, which I mean, mm-hmm. don't really bear repeating, but like, yeah, definitely an interesting figure to be sort of like at the, you know, the forefront of this movie. That's such an iconic, you know, important part of the community to be totally honest. Just, I don't know. I didn't, I don't really have anything to say about it. Just definitely an interesting human being. Yeah. And um, I know uh, before we started recording, you <laughs> kind of asked me, you know, as, as the trans person in the room, yes, <laughs> uh, how, how I felt about um, Frankenfurter's entrance with the song, uh, sweet transvestite. Yeah. And it, Honestly, I I do find it rather interesting um, because like some people uh, think the film and especially because they're called transvestites and transsexuals that it's um, a transphobic take. 
Um, but I like personally, you know, from my experience, like I, I don't see it that way whatsoever. You know, it's much more liberating and embracing of trans culture than anything else. You know, when, when I did the shadow cast, it was for Hamilton pride and Mm. we had a full queer cast, um, director, you know, sound person, everything, all of us were queer and at least three of us were trans, you know, and our Frankenfurter um, is a, you know, was played by a beautiful trans man who's now, you know, becoming a lawyer. Oh, wow. Um, right. <laughs> Fucking iconic. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found this, you know, to be very embracing of that, you know, what with the fluid genders and everything. And if you do look back um and take this movie in context right it started out as like a 40 minute um experimental stage production from 1973 and so back in the 70s the language around gender and transness was very different yeah. uh, than it is today in the 2020s right um and back then it was actually uh more common to call people transvestites right if you were um you know living in a a male body and dressing in a feminine way Mm -hmm. uh you you'd just be called you know a transvestite and like you know if you look at um the dsm so the diagnostic statistic statistics manual um you know transvestism was identified as a mental um, illness and was only removed in 2013 right yeah. so it's it's still uh pretty recent that being trans was seen as a mental illness right something that could be uh changed and healed you know through modern medicine and uh, especially through psychiatry but we don't see that in rocky horror you know we don't see this medicalization you know uh, this stigmatization of being trans or being a transvestite and transvestism or whatever we we don't see that in rocky horror what we see is it 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 not being questioned you know i'd say being celebrated like uh, yeah that that song like that intro song for frankenfurter is so like I don't know, like glammed up. Like it is, it is an absolute, you know, he is loud and proud about it to use the, the old words <laughs> to invoke the, it, the ancient magic. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't think of anything even in the, I think if anything that points to like a certain level of like this movie being ahead of its time, you know, it, it comes from a time when that was the language and, you know, yeah. unfortunately we can't go back and change it or anything, but it, is what 30 40 years ahead of it of transvestitism even being removed from the dsm and Mm -hmm. it has the wherewithal to celebrate that about this character and and turn this character into the icon that that he's become so you know it it, yeah to me it's a it's a pretty forward-thinking narrative but you know yeah obviously take my words with a grain of salt as well (laughs) yeah i find it pretty empowering right because you know, Frankenfurter, you know, even though he's a, you know, a narcissistic, hubristic doctor, <laughs> yeah. um, he, he wins over 
these two very straight-laced individuals just by being himself, yeah, right? By being theatrical, by being larger than life, you know, by being captivating and uh, confident, you know, and we even see this change with Janet where she like comes to embrace herself at first, you know, she faints when she meets Frankenfurter, right? Mm. She's completely overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by his presence. Um, And later, you know, uh, Frankenfurter shows off Rocky and is like, oh, so what do you think of him, Janet? And she's like, oh, I don't like a man with too many muscles. Uh, (laughs) And then like that's her eyes at Brad to indicate that he's the type of man who doesn't have too many muscles. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But by the end of the songs uh, in the lab, you know, Janet's saying, I'm a muscle fan. You know, she's been won over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, is, you know, stops playing coy and is really more embracing, you know, what her, her actual tastes are as opposed to the ones that are socially prescribed to her. So, I don't know, Frank is this very infectious personality who brings out the authenticity in others. So, I mean, if, if they're, yeah, fuck it, like, that, that <laughs> is, that is exactly what I see transness to be, right? Mm. Like, um, it, to express yourself um, as a trans person is to be your authentic self regardless of the uh, social situation and circumstances you're in hmm. and when you do meet a trans person who you know has accepted themselves and are living their full authentic trueness it brings out that authenticity in the people who are around them it is it is a very mm-hmm. infectious um, sort of self-acceptance. And it's one of the most, you know, beautiful experiences, right? And it's similar to the kind of um, fanfare you get around drag queens, right? Mm. So it's it's ugh, fucking fabulous. And mm-hmm. I mean, I see Frankenfurter as a, like a queer icon, so like live it up like if this is what it's like living in transylvania and (laughs) you know being a transylvanian alien like fuck it sign me up for that mission (laughs) into space i i think i have one more question about the actual plot before we sort of talk about the 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 hype or like the fallout of this movie did did you feel sympathetic toward frank at the end like it did you because I think you could see Frank as this icon character and this liberator, or you could see him as uh, an abuser and uh, this this sort of, you know, villain of the story. So that's, I guess, like, yeah. yeah. How did you how did you feel at the end when Frank is is no more? Ooh, I mean, I, I think when looking at Frank's character, you have to see him as both. Yeah. Um. You know, and. You know, I I do wonder what Frankenfurter was like, you know, when he first came to Earth, right? Um, you know, and who he was, bef- you know, say, when he had met Columbia. Um, but we don't get that, you know, look into his past. So we don't get to see, you know, who he was before he went down this kind of path of isolation 
and you know embracing the lavish lifestyle <laughs> and you know as he started using people um but i i find it very a very yeah bittersweet yeah um yeah. like i said at the beginning of the podcast i because you know you do see frank and Furter have this very emotional song about kind of bidding farewell mm. to the life he's lived on earth and you know that he's going home mm-hmm. um which makes me think that perhaps he escaped home right mm. um which is a very relatable experience for a lot of queer people where they have to leave behind their home in mm-hmm. order to live their authentic lives and be who they are and so we you know we get to see frank kind of you know break down drop his facade and embrace the fact that he's going to return home to a place he hasn't been in a long time so it's i don't know i i guess i do feel some sympathy to frank um because i think he's at that turning point of maybe recognizing that everything he's done hasn't quite been good um but i don't Mm. think he really he's only at like the beginning of a redemption arc right you know we don't get to see that full redemption of his character and so i can't fully sympathize with him because i mean (laughs) he did he did murder eddie he sure did um and call it a mercy killing yeah um and took out half his brain before that yeah yeah was experimenting on people you know and you know put put brad and janet in these very compromising positions you know we watch as he literally beats riffraff so i mean yeah he sure does not, not like the 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 best person um but i i i i do feel for him a bit at least a bit you know we talked about it before we started recording during the scene where he dies i was just finding it a little bit hard to follow what was like actually happening on screen and i could yeah. not tell at what point uh frankenfurter was alive or dead and mm. like when rocky was climbing up the radio tower i was like tim curry was so obviously breathing and like <laughs> making i think like uncomfortable faces just being slung over this man's back that mm. i was like wait is he alive or dead i could i genuinely couldn't tell and to me that took away from part of the drama of the scene but mm. you know that's the charm of uh, of indie movies of the era for sure definitely um I think like one of the last things I want to talk about that I have sort of on the agenda here is just, you know, we talked about the massive cult following that this movie has and and how it's the longest running theatrical release. Um, and that, you know, the, the viewings encourage audience participation and stage productions. And as you've attested to, right, it's sort of a, a gathering point, a, a lightning rod for, you know, people in the in the queer and trans communities to sort of come out and be themselves and express themselves in a, in a really amazing way through performance. And I love that about it. And, you know, some, some of the people in our, in our discord had said sort of like, you know, it's a movie that I never really got the hype, but I like some of the songs that we saw a few of those types of sentiments. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is like, when it comes to the hype, like this, you know, obviously this, 
the queer community has a, had a big impact on the movie's popularity, but also vice versa. The movie's had a big impact on the queer community. There's, there's actually an essay about this movie called uh, Bisexuality, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Me by Elizabeth Rebo Weiss. Um, and it was included in an anthology book called By Any Other Name, Bisexual mm. People Speak Out, by being B-I, obviously. Um, if there's one thing we know, it's that bisexuals love a pun. Um, yes. <laughs> that was in 1991, and that book is considered one of the seminal works of the bi-liberation movement. It's, it's been compared to Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, which sparked the second wave of feminism, but for bisexuals. So, like, this movie mm. has its sticky little fingerprints on the modern day makeup of this community. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate sort of the, the legacy of this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I will say it was, it was beautiful um, to uh, be part of a shadow uh, cast of this. And like, I played Brad Yes. Um, who is a major <laughs> asshole. Um, and like, I really got to know his character because you, you study uh, that character specifically, right? As you're watching the movie and stuff. And of course, uh, it's it's when he's in the blue silk robe um, <laughs> after sleeping with uh, Frankenfurter uh, that, you know, Frank makes a comment about, oh, I hope you're adaptable um you know dr scott brad certainly is and brad has this kind of like (laughs) kind of like shy like embarrassed little like duck of his head but you know brad's discovered his bisexuality and Mm. he he is you know the classic 70s hero you know he's 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 tall he looks kind of strong you know he's a brunette like mm-hmm. he's 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 very like in charge he's dominant you know he's he's got those clark kent kind of glasses i was gonna bring up clark kent like i could see I, this dude being cast as a as a superman yeah right so so we get to see superman <laughs> bisexual right we get to see as the best the, superman are i yeah we get to see this like you know the feminine side of um of superman uh but brad's you know embracing of femininity even when he's like dressed up in a corset and heels yeah he still is masculine Uh uh-huh right and i i think it balances his bisexuality very well without making fun of him yeah you know and without making him seem like any less of a man Mm -hmm. i which yeah you you mentioned in the Discord we had a talk about like who people's favorite characters were. Brad was mine because I just loved watching him go from like this brash, confident, um I, I wouldn't say domineering or anything, but just he had mm-hmm. the like the 70s leading man quality of like, don't worry, honey, just listen to me and <laughs> it'll all be fine. Um yeah. and watching him go from that to help me, mommy, I feel sexy <laughs> at, at the cabaret <laughs> show. Um, yeah. and that slow, that slow transition where he is sort of, in a way he's dethroned in a way he's empowered in a way he's maybe corrupted perhaps. Um, oh, absolutely. but uh, yeah, watching him go from being a dude who, 
you know, dudes in that era, if you were sort of a white dude and middle class and on track to be married, you kind of had the whole world at your fingertips. You know, you were, you were kind of maybe one of the most powerful types of people in the world. And yeah. <laughs> watching him go from from the confidence that that bestows upon you to sort of being less sure later on was just some, something to see. I really I really liked his character progression. Yeah, I... Who was your so favorite in, character? I, so mine would have to be uh, Janet. Yeah. Uh, for very similar reasons. And I think it's because her and Brad, uh, you know, their character development mirrors each other, right? Where Brad is very, like, in control of himself at the beginning and becomes more unsure at the end. Whereas Janet is the opposite. You know, she... Uh, my love for her really started when they are approaching uh, the castle Frankenstein, you know, and she asserts herself. She's like, oh, I'm not going to let you go alone. You know, you might fall in love with, you know, the woman of the manor, you know, and be seduced by her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as as they're approaching the castle, you know, uh, Janet's, you know, hiding under her newspaper, you know, from the weather, you know, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and, you know, she, she sees all the warning signs that maybe this place isn't very safe, you know, <laughs> whereas Brad, you know, barges straight on up and he's like, oh, everything's going to be fine. But <laughs> Janet is very worried. She's, you know, scared approaching. She, you know, the, the trees cut like catch on her clothes, you know, she's, she's wet, she's unhappy, you know, it's very foreboding, but she kind of follows along with her fiance anyway. Mm -hmm. And she goes from this woman who is, you know, faints three times, you know, <laughs> in the beginning of the movie to, you know, uh, someone who is, you know, stomping her foot and, you know, upset, you know, taking her sexuality into her own hands, you know, confronting Frankenfurter, um, you know, about what he's been doing and, you know, eventually, you know, is like kind of protecting her fiance during the floor show. Um, and I, I, I just, I love how she goes from being this kind of like, you know, on the route to being a meek and mild, you know, housewife to a woman who owns her sexuality and feels empowered by it. Um, even though, you know, her first sexual encounter isn't by her terms, mm -hmm. you know, her later ones are. Yeah. And, you know, she, she really blossoms into a, a full fledged, you know, badass by the end. Like, fuck yeah, Janet, own it. And also, Susan Sarandon, just... Susan Sarandon, oh, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. She also She's... got uh, pneumonia on set from doing the pool scene at the end because it was oh, so God. cold. Uh, apparently, there was, like, no heating in the mansion where they filmed this, and... Yeah! yeah. She, got, she got straight up pneumonia from the pool scene, and Richard O'Brien was like, she should have gotten like medical attention, but she like refused to stop working. Um, wow. she's, yeah, she's a tank. She's a unit. She is a tank. Yeah, there the 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 fucking place they filmed was an actual dilapidated, you know, falling down building with no bathrooms, yeah. no heat, and they had one room that they put a bunch of space heaters in that was like the warming room 
until it fucking caught on fire. Like so cursed. This, this yeah, this this production must have been insane to do. That mansion was also used to shoot a bunch of like old B movies in like the 30s through the 60s. So like the exact type of movies that they were sort of parody parodying uh, throughout Ugh. the the show. So fucking iconic. There's there's so much we could say about the movie, but. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's about time to wrap up? You want to introduce the next movie that we'll be talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, pretty apt um, is our next movie that we're going to couple with this, which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The original one from 1974. TTCSM. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, written by Kim Hankel and Toby Hooper and directed by Toby Hooper mm-hmm. and starring Gunnar Hansen. As Ooh. the chainsaw. As yeah. <laughs> as the chainsaw itself, Mr. Gunnar Hansen, our, uh, what's his name? Leatherface. Ooh, yeah. And I, I had no idea that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a queer uh film until i listened to an episode of look good for the boys which is another uh queer horror podcast and they were yeah they were talking about and rating you know uh uh, (laughs) who wore it best leatherface edition (laughs) and uh, (laughs) apparently gunner hansen wears it best you know he is the original leatherface and uh apparently does drag uh, oh. and dances so i've i've never seen the texas chainsaw massacre and i am i'm quite excited to watch it with you jake i yeah i'm excited too i believe it's based on a true story as well if i'm not <gasps> if i'm not incorrect so i feel like we're gonna have a lot to talk about when it comes to like you know using real life as fodder for horror stories and true crime mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. I feel like we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I've, I've got some thoughts. So I'm excited to get deep into the weeds on that with you. Ooh, excellent. Cool. Well, everybody, uh, hope you enjoyed our conversation about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Sorry, sorry about uh, any of the technical difficulties that may or may not have gotten in the way. Um, you know, the realities of, of, life these days um Mm -hmm. but if you want to you know get more involved if you want to talk to us or see what we're up to in the future uh you can of course subscribe to the podcast however you're listening to it right now i imagine you know how to do that part uh you can also visit the link in the description where you can find all of our social medias as well as our discord server we've got a community where we sort of uh have book club like conversations about the movies that we're watching it's a great place we had a we had a really lively conversation this week about rocky horror um and if you would like to be in conversations like that about Texas Chainsaw Massacre or any of the future or past movies that we've talked about, we've got separate threads for all of them. So it's a good time. Get in there. See what see what we've got to offer. It's a lot. Yeah, come join us. <laughs> all right, everybody. I think that's going to be it. Um, say, say, say goodbye, Shannon. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye, Shannon. <laughs> oh, you little scam. <laughs> Take care, everybody. See ya.